joys, hopes, frustrations, pains in Christian life is raising Christian children. As a congregation, we all have a stake in this issue, whether or not we have children ourselves. For children have a special place in the teaching and heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a love for one another, and you can hardly love one another and be unconcerned about an issue which occupies 20 or 30 years of the lives of our brothers and sisters. Indeed, it goes longer. I've always felt sorry for the Queen Mother, who on her, in her 101st year was still worried about her daughter, Princess Margaret, who was dying of cancer at the time. Once you're a mother, always you're a mother. It never goes away somehow. It just continues on, even after a hundred. You would have thought you could have a little rest once you've crossed a hundred. I don't know whether she got a, a, a telegram from her daughter or not on the occasion, uh, but that's one of the questions of heaven to ask. What most parents want is some kind of guarantee that if they follow a prescribed method, then they will be able in their child raising, then inevitably their children will turn out well. They'll be healthy, they'll be happily married with their own children, and they'll be actively Christian. But there is no such kind of guaranteed outcome that is available and true. There are some that are available, but they're not true. They're quite false. They make false promises. For there's no foolproof way of raising children. Children are humans, not pets, not dogs that can be trained, not property that can be traded and sold and outsourced. They make their choices, the children do, and they make them in response to us and to others, and we cannot fully protect them from the fallen world or from their own sinfulness. Children bring both great joy and great pain to their parents. As the proverb says, a wise son makes glad, makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. And many can testify to here to both truths in that proverb. Of the great joy, almost no greater can be had than by our children. And of the great pain. And almost no pain is as bitter. Over the centuries and in different cultures, children have been treated quite differently from being treated as if they're royalty to be treated as if they're slaves. Some parents dote on their little prince and princesses as if there is nothing more important in all of life and thus teach their children narcissism teaching their children that there is nothing more important in all of life, that they are the very centre of the universe. On the other hand, some treat their children as little more than slaves' labour. That the child has no rights and all duties, they are to be seen and not heard. They are taught that they are nothing and deserve nothing and are nothing but an inconvenience to, to adult society. And between those two extremes, most of us have been raised. I hope none of us have been raised on either of those extremes, although in our particular period of history, it's more down the prince and princess line than it's down the slave labour line. But 
most of us are raised somewhere between those two extremes. And of recent times, there's been a different debate about Christian child raising in terms of whether they are the children of Christians or Christian children. So, Professor Dawkins has, has argued in his great big book on the God delusion that there's no such thing as Christian children, only children of Christians. To treat children as Christian children, he sees as child abuse. All children are born atheists until taught otherwise. Now, of course, Professor Dawkins overstates his position on this, as he does on everything else. I mean, Svetlana, the daughter of Stalin, was raised as an atheist and taught atheism and only taught atheism all her life. And when she became a Christian in adult life, she said that I always believed in God the whole time. Children are not born atheists, even if you try and indoctrinate them into it, any more than children are born necessarily believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and there's any number of people who have been raised that way. But some Christians, like Andrew Wilson, who's produced this little response to Dawkins, and a, a very good little read and response it is, he agrees with him on this subject. He disagrees on nearly every other subject, but on this he agrees with him. That God has no grandchildren, so a child is not a Christian child. You start with the assumption that the child is an unbeliever and hopefully, prayerfully, over time, you hope the child will come to repentance and faith and belief in God. Others see the child as a gift of God given to a Christian family to raise within the faith. And as God has made a covenant with his people Israel and their children, so God has made his covenant with us and our children. And this opens up for us all manner of debates about whether the Old Covenant is different to the New Covenant in this area, the Old Testament different to the New Testament. To be an Israelite was to be born into the family. To be a Christian is to be born again. And so is there a difference here? Or it opens up the debate about individualism and corporate responsibility. The Scriptures are clear. The soul that sins is the soul that will be punished. You're not going to be punished for your father's sin or your father punished for your sin. And yet the scripture also says that as in Adam, all sinned. We sinned in the sin of Adam. So is my sin and my salvation wholly reliant upon me? Or is there some form of whatever it might be, inheritance, corporate relationship, whereby Am I Philip, the person who has made himself to be the man I am? Or am I Philip Jensen, the son of Arthur Jensen, who made me the man that I am? How can I separate my individualism from my corporate familyism? And is it possible to do so? Or more practical issues that come before us, should we baptise babies? and confirm them when they come of age to confess the faith for themselves? Or should we dedicate babies and baptise them when they come of age to confess the faith for themselves? Christians are in quite strong disagreement over how we treat our babies in their introduction into Christian life and into church life. And then there are questions of at what age is sufficient for the child to confess their faith? 
At what age do they become a, a Christian in a Christian family? And while some of us are very conscious of a moment of conversion, many of us are not conscious of that at all. We have always professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and cannot point to any point at which we would say, I need to be baptised or I need to be confirmed because I've come to a new faith in God. Or even more practically, do you teach your child to pray our father if they haven't been born again and he is not their father? Or do you wait until they profess their faith and then teach them that way? One of the Sunday schools that I was responsible for once, not here, uh, had a Sunday school teacher for whom captured the extremes of this problem for us. She made half the class sit on one side of the table, they were the unbelievers, and half the class sit on the other side of the table, they were the believers. And to those who were believers, she taught the scriptures, and to those who were unbelievers, she kept explaining the gospel. Whenever a child professed faith in Christ, they could move from that side of the table over to this side of the table and then be taught the scriptures. This is multitasking in the extreme, but apart from that, it is really horrific, especially when you understand she was teaching three-year-olds. It was why I had to ask her to resign from Sunday school teaching but she was holding to the logic of the profession of Professor Dawkins, of all people. Not that she was an atheist, she was a very keen Christian, but it was the same logic. These are not Christian children, these are not Christians, and until they profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I need to explain to them the way of salvation, nothing else matters. Which is closer to child abuse than treating them as Christians. So, how do we treat our children? Well, let me return briefly to last week's topic of marriage and of children. For marriage is not a human invention, it was part of God's purpose in creation. For God created us, male and female, that we may fill the earth. Built into the purpose of God was this filling the earth with humans, not simply by creating millions of humans, which he could have done, but by creating humans to reproduce in an ever-expanding family. So a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and create a next family unit in this ever-expanding web of family units. Some couples remain childless because of the fallen nature of our world, and I know this can be extremely, intensely painful. Few pains are greater that I've seen rack the soul of any person than those who have a great desire for children but are unable to have them. But the general purpose of God in uniting us in marriage is not just for our love, our companionship, our fellowship. It is for children and thus the psalms that our choir sang for us and chanted for us today, Psalms 127 and 128, are about marriage and family life in Israel, rejoicing in the blessings of God, especially having children, many children, and having grandchildren and 
having your grandchildren playing around your feet, being part of an extended family of generations. But God's plan was more than simply having children. It was that we would have godly offspring. You see it in our reading from Malachi 2. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God, what the one God was seeking was godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. See, God's purpose in uniting us was to have children. But the uniting was a permanent uniting, not one that was to be divided, not one that was to be broken, because it wasn't just having children, it was having children and raising them in the fear and nurture of the Lord, that we would have godly offspring. For it's out of the unity of father and mother that the the child is in the best context to be raised as one of God's children. Not that it's automatic, as if a child in an intact family will be godly, whereas a child in a divorced or broken family can't be godly. It's not automatic like that, friends. But yet, there is a great correlation between adults' faith and two believing parents compared to the vision within the home. Just as there's a great high correlation with many positive outcomes for children of intact families compared to children of divorce. And so in Matthew 19, chapters tw- uh, verses 1 to 12, Jesus has just dealt with the unity of marriage, with his great statement in verse 6, so they're no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Then in verse 13, Matthew takes us to that little event with the children and the kingdom of heaven when the children were brought to Jesus, that he might pray for them, laying his hands upon them. And the disciples rebuked the parents and tried to prevent them. Uh, This is not the first reference to children in Matthew's Gospel, nor to their importance in the kingdom of heaven. For the Gospel often talks of children, and it displays an understanding of the reality of children that most of us would grasp if we've raised them or been with them. Here are some of the points that are made. Children are not independent but travel with their parents. So we read, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Or again, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And so children share the same fate as their parents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The family that goes into bankruptcy, the children that go into bankruptcy. The family that goes into wealth, the children go into wealth. The children share with their parents. And children depend and rely upon their parents for everything. Which of you asks Jesus? If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The giving of gifts and the receiving of gifts, the depending upon our parents, 
is a normality that is seen in the gospel. But children are sometimes silly, fickle and easily misled, especially by their peers. So Jesus says, but what, to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For children lack wisdom and understanding, though they can be taught. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Little children are not wise, they don't understand. That's not what we expect to have from children, wisdom and understanding. But little children can understand and can be taught. But there's one passage about children in Matthew's Gospel that is not the normal perception of children. It's when Jesus illustrated the coming, the entry into the Kingdom of God. Just turn back a page in your Bibles, back to chapter 18, page 992. Beginning of chapter 18. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the Kingdom of Heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not that children are humble, but the child was without any status above a slave. That Jesus said we must humble ourselves to become like a child if we're ever to enter the kingdom of heaven. For entry into the kingdom of heaven isn't about being wise or clever or highly educated. It isn't about being great or important or significant. It isn't about being wealthy or powerful or strong. It isn't about being good or ethical or moral. Entry into the kingdom of heaven is about coming on our knees as sinners seeking salvation. It's about God being merciful and gracious to sinners. It's about beggars with nothing to offer but pleading for help. It's about the humility of recognising ourselves as we truly are without one plea to make. As the old hymn puts it, just as I am, without one plea, but that you died to set me free, and at your bidding come to me, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, all that I need in you to find, O Lamb of God. I come. See, that's the problem for us, isn't it? We find it hard to think of ourselves as poor, wretched, blind, as have nothing to impress God with. Our CV, when we come to the hands of God, is blank. The degrees we have, the, the people we've helped, the activities we've been involved in, the sporting competitions we've won, the, the golf trophy that we've got, they are of no consequence when we are face to face with God. We have nothing to plea but that he who died 
to set me free. We must become as the little child. Or as that other old, great old hymn, Rock of Ages, puts it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Stained by sin, to you I cry, wash me, Saviour, or I die. But at this time in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel, the disciples don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus has come to do. They don't understand that their master has come to die for their sins. They don't understand that the kingdom is about forgiveness, not merit. They don't understand that entry into the kingdom is by the grace of God upon a repentant people. And so they still haven't understood Jesus' teaching about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That the way to be the greatest is to be the least. It's whoever humbles himself to become like a little child with no rights, no pretensions, no signs of greatness, but like a a slave renounces all of self to accept whatever God so kindly will give us. That is the great one. These disciples are supposed to be the little ones like that, the little ones whom God and Jesus will protect. But yet it is these very disciples, these very little ones in Jesus' company who don't understand how much children illustrate the gospel. For when the little ones come to be blessed, then these little ones push them aside. The irony of the fact that they are like the little children but will not accept the little children shows that they are not like the little children at all, yet they haven't understood, they don't get it. They of all people should have seen in the little children what Jesus was talking about, that nobody is saved on their own merits, but on God's grace. And so, because of that, anybody, everybody should be brought to the Saviour for whatever blessings he wishes to bestow upon them, but they don't get it. It's good news, friends, isn't it? Because some of us don't have a golf trophy to show God. Some of us don't have a university degree to wave in the face of the Almighty. Some of us don't actually have a great track record of morality and high ethics and religiosity. Some of us actually, we know the truth about ourselves. We have nothing to impress God with. We can't even impress our neighbours. But don't worry. It's those who come with nothing who receive everything. And those who come with something receive nothing. For the basis of entry into the kingdom of heaven is to empty yourself of all other than the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. And so Jesus tells them again in chapter 19, verse 14, that to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Not to children as such, but to those with childlike trust who come with nothing in their hands and ask God's for blessing. These little children, and the word actually for children here is a, a little children, 
emphasising how young they were. These little children symbolise the way people enter into the kingdom. But the disciples haven't understood it. They still don't know who gets into the kingdom of heaven. Which considering we're up to chapter 19 of a 28 chapter book, they really are slow, aren't they? But that's alright friends. We're not that much far ahead of them always, are we? That's why we like the disciples. It's always nice to be in a class where there's a dumb kid who asks questions all the time for you. Because you don't have to lose any kind of pride by asking the dumb question. I had one bloke like that all the way through school. And I even met him again at university and he was still asking dumb questions. And uh, we parted company after first year at university. He went on in his medical faculty degree to get the university medal. And he was always asking dumb questions that I like to hear, actually. Well, the disciples were like that. They are a foil for Jesus, aren't they? A foil that makes sense for us, but learn from them. See, the children brought to Jesus receive his prayer and blessing. Laying his hand upon them, he prayed for them. What a wonderful thing. Ponder that for a moment, friends. To have the Saviour of the world personally pray for you. How marvellous to have the Son of God, to have God the Son pray to his heavenly Father for you. I mean, if ever there's a prayer that you'd expect to be answered, that's the one, isn't it? When God the Son prays to God the Father for you. And of course, that's what you can have right now. Yes, you can have the Lord Jesus Christ praying for you right now. For that's what God is doing, God the Son is doing for his people right now. As we read in Romans, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, praying for us. Notice what Jesus is now doing. It's in that last line there who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus isn't watching the results of the rugby league. Well, he may be, but that's not what his job is at the moment. His job at the moment is to pray for us. It says so in Hebrews as well, that Jesus is able to save up to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus lives to do now, to pray for you, to pray for me, to pray for those who will come to the Father in his name. So in this little event recorded in Matthew 19, we see two marvellous truths. We see Christian parenting in action, bringing their children to Jesus for his prayer, for his blessing. Never holds back. Never wait for the children to come. We don't wait for the children to learn to eat before we feed them. We don't learn to wait for children to dress before we dress them. We don't wait for the children to discover mathematics before we teach it to them. We, we don't wait for the children to learn to speak before we teach them to speak. We don't say, well, look, there's lots of different languages, aren't there? English is a very useful language. It's my language. But, you know, there's as many people speaking Chinese as there is English... 
Maybe I'll wait and see which the child wants to learn. When the child's of age and tells me which language they want to learn, then I'll teach. I wouldn't want to impose English on my children. That would be a terrible form of indoctrination, wouldn't it? They'll never be able to speak to all those millions of wonderful people from China because I've indoctrinated them in the wrong language. When they're eight or nine and they're old enough to tell me, then I'll teach them whichever language they'd like to learn. What nonsense! It's just no understanding of the nature of parents and children's and family to think that is the case. The prime educators of every child are their parents. They're the educators of the children and we educate them in what we believe is the right and the true and, the, and whatever is helpful and beneficial for them. Our children are our responsibility till they are of age to make decisions for themselves. Some decisions we make for them, they will not be happy about and will reject as adults. Others they will never challenge but happily accept as part of our family way of life. Others they will come to think about and learn and believe for themselves in due time. Our responsibility as parents is to do what is best for our children and there's nothing better than bringing them to the Saviour for his prayer and for his blessing. There's nothing better than like with the children of Israel as we read in Deuteronomy, to be teaching our children the ways of the Lord. So Christians are to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But in this little event we also see a second great wonderful truth, that is the nature of Christian acceptance. Even the smallest child can be accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ for the way we come to him as adults is as a little child, depending totally upon his kindness and upon his grace and upon his mercy and not at all upon our ability or our own importance. I saw a very capable, able, professional woman struggling with becoming a Christian. Week by week she came to church, but always she balked at becoming a Christian. Always feeling she wasn't good enough, wasn't able enough, couldn't make the grade. She wasn't religious enough. She didn't have the experience of what she's supposed to experience. She didn't have enough of the faith she was supposed to have. Then one Sunday she saw a baby being baptised and the pennies dropped. It's not about me. It's not about what I do or what I've achieved or what I am. If God accepts the baby... He can accept me. All I need is his acceptance. All I need is his forgiveness. Now, I'm not advocating infant baptism by that illustration. I'm not even interested in talking about infant baptism. Please don't talk to me about it this morning. It's just an illustration of this passage that in Jesus' acceptance of the little children we see the illustration of what you need to be to be accepted in the kingdom of heaven. It's not about what we bring. It's all about his gracious welcome of us. It's not about me. It's about him. 
I must become as a little child. Nothing, says the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And so just as I am, without one plea other than you died to set me free and that you bid me come to me, oh, Lamb of God, I come. Well, look again at that prayer that I so often lead, finish sermons with on the back of the outline there. And you'll see again, doesn't mention children, but the concepts are the same. This is the way into the kingdom of heaven, my friends. To acknowledge in that first paragraph of the prayer, you have nothing to offer. I know I'm not worthy. I don't deserve. I'm guilty. I need forgiveness. We come with nothing in our hand other than our need. And so we thank God because he's the one who brings us into his kingdom. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. And so pray, forgive me, change me, that I may live with Jesus as king. I close in this prayer now. Can I invite you to pray it with me? And if you have never come to God as a little child, can I invite you to come to him in this prayer right now? Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.